and welcome to episode 9 of Sicko Mode. I am Siang. I am Leon Fotsky. <laughs> Hello, Leon. Good to be here. Um, yep, and today we are joined by a very special guest, Miriam, our new resident Leninologist. Miriam, <laughs> how are you? Hi, I'm good, thanks. Thank you for having me. Uh, you are very welcome. Thanks for coming. Um, I guess it's time for you to fight with uh, Leon Fotsky then. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay, we've made peace All right, in the afterlife. <laughs> so Miriam, you're, uh, we've been asked not to call you an expert on Lenin, but you are a Lenin stan, and you do regularly commune with him beyond the uh, physical realm, is that right? Yeah, when he tells me that it's, it, I shouldn't stan him without having read all his writings, um, and that I'm a bad Marxist Leninist, but we're working through it, we're working through it. <laughs> Well, to, hopefully today to will be like some conflict resolution and we can, yeah. we can kind of bridge that world and, and this one. So uh, tell me, why are we discussing Lenin? Why is it so interesting right now to revisit uh, Mr. Big Daddy Lenin? Aside from the fact that it was, it was his birthday last week. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Mr. Lenin. How old, <laughs> how old would he have been? Quick maths. 150. Oh, wow. Yes. Old. Yeah. Also, on Saturday, we did a quiz that Miriam participated in. One of the rounds was uh, revolutionary and communist history, which Miriam got full marks in. <laughs> and question number one was what day, month and year was Lenin born on? Oh, wow. So, so wait, where, yeah. what day, month and year was he born in? 22nd of April, 1870. Damn. So we've got the basics down. We can just finish <laughs> yeah. this episode now. That was the key, key information. <laughs> Happy birthday. Um, but yeah, who was, uh, who was he? Well, you know, he's very, uh, some would say controversial figure. I would say very great man. Yeah, I mean, what's the controversy? Absolute ledge, basically. I suppose yeah. his, like, his, like, branch of Marxism was kind of politically significant enough to kind of form a new, what's the word? ideology of like Marxism Leninism so mm -hmm. other people who read Marx differently um, might take issue with the way that he yeah. sees Marx and applies communism yeah have alternative interpretations what, um, what are those different um, branches then uh, what does Marxism Leninism offer to us in particular and what what are the ways to kind of read against that I think I guess the main I don't know, I haven't read all of Lenin, but the way I would say it is like he believed in the fact that states have class character and that the bourgeois state should be supplanted by the a state led by the working class, so dictatorship of the proletariat that was mm. and powers taken by um a revolutionary vanguard party. Um and then the state withers away and he draws on Marx quite heavily for this, like the state withers away to form um like socialism communism so i think people other um theorists take issue with the fact that he sees the state as being very central to the establishment of communism yeah but a different state to the state that we currently live under i think it's worth emphasizing yeah i think it's very um interesting and that often um i think especially online um, debates about like what kinds of Marxists we are can become kind of about like abstract like abstract abstracted ideological differences or like kind of like our Marxist identity whereas obviously like when we read Lenin which I have not done very much to be honest <laughs> it is very clear as with like all of these different theorists that they're theorizing about Marx and historical materialism from the basis of the situation that they're in and how we apply like Marxist thought and dialectical materialism to the situations in which the specific situations in which we find ourselves so like a lot of the revolutions or revolutionary movements that have been inspired by Marxism Leninism have uh, for example um, occurred during like a specific like time period um, especially in a lot of countries in the global south that were engaging in like anti-colonial, anti-imperial struggle, where the character of the state and what it could do and what, what it meant for colonised peoples during those revolutions 
is quite different from the situations in which we imagine the state in the UK in 2020 to be in now. Yeah. I think that distinction is very important between lots of the disagreements that people have about the, the figure of Lenin actually come down to like taking different positions on issues which are kind of already relegated to the past and mm. they often involve ignoring kind of large swathes of of the globe right mm. and so it's into it's what i wonder often how we kind of ended up in this position where mm. i mean particularly with uh, mr lenin's birthday last week you couldn't move <laughs> for for hot takes uh on lenin there's lots of people wading in just like you know there, there's no one was asking for it and suddenly someone will be like you know lenin's uh, a genocider and if you even say his name, you are also a genocider and you are cancelled. And it yeah. seems it seems sometimes as if there can't be any discussion whatsoever about the legacy of the USSR or, or Lenin without um, someone having some kind of bizarre reaction. And I, I'm not really a Lenin expert either. You might say I've kind of seen the anime, but I haven't read the manga. Like I've read about <laughs> Lenin. And I've read like little bits of Lenin, but I haven't like uh, gone in deep um, on the key works. But obviously, uh, it's a good, I think he's a good figure to go back to now. And so if we can kind of avoid having those ridiculous debates where, you know, the victims of communism brought up or someone, (laughs) someone invokes some Russian anarchist that was killed as if they were like a personal friend. And like, I can't even bear to talk about this because of like Nikolai Yatsenshevsky like died in mysterious circumstances a uh, uh, hundred years ago. It's like okay, well, we're talking about a, a historical scale here. Um, yeah. But I, I do think, I think the point I want to emphasize is that Lenin's work seems to me to be incredibly important right now, because yeah. you might describe. Um, our enemies as having something of the Leninist about them that they're willing to do whatever it takes to take and maintain power Mm. and and you know they they understand power and they understand how the state works Um, and obviously so Lenin one of his key texts and a good place to start you were saying before Miriam would be state and revolution right yeah, um, that's the first one that I read. So what is it about this well, relatively short tract that is uh, so darn useful, or we might argue is so so useful? Um, I guess it, for me, yeah, it, as I said earlier, like his kind of take on Marxism is this idea that the state um, doesn't just disappear once power is taken by the proletariat, like it persists, but in control of the proletariat and i thought he he outlines that like very succinctly um and he also i think um i I mean i read this like just after um the labor party lost the election in 2019 (laughs) um and he also savages social democrats like quite heavily um so that was that was a little a little dagger in my heart um (laughs) But I think, like, it, yeah, it's it's an interesting um, book to read because, I mean, yeah, I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with everything that he says in it, but I think that, um, I don't know, we, we often talk about, like, what what we want under communism or what, like, a communist world will look like, but no one really discusses, like, the, the actual mechanics of getting there, like... Hmm. And obviously we had that with the Labour Party, there was a lot of discourse on like, oh, the, La- the Labour Party won't save us. Like, is this like enough? Like, we sh- maybe we shouldn't be devoting all this energy to like a social democratic party in the imperial core, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I feel like I was thinking about that. And then I think I read this book from someone who literally stopped writing the book to enact the revolution. Like he, <laughs> wait, I've got it here. He has like this in the, la- the last chapter. So it was, it's kind of, it's unfinished. So. Um, the last chapter that he started was the experience of the Russian re- the Russian revolutions of 1905 and 1917. So he means like April 1917 here. Um, and then the, in in a postscript he adds, um, I except for the title, I did not manage to finish the writing of a single line of the chapter. The hindrance was a political crisis, the eve of the October Revolution of 1917. Such a hindrance can only be welcomed. 
but the second issue of the pamphlet will probably have to be delayed for a long time. It is more pleasant and useful to undertake the experience of revolution than to write about it. And I'm sorry, like, if you don't think that's a, the biggest mic drop of all time, like, I don't know what to say to you. Like, the guy's writing a book on, like, how to do a revolution, and then he has to stop to do a revolution. Sorry, but when were your faves ever? <laughs> yeah, he's yeah, like, I listen wish, here, yeah. I'm going to let you finish, but right now I've got to go do a revolution, so, so see you later. I like that, I like that whole attitude. It's an only dream. Yeah, also, like, this guy, I mean, I mean it's, like, a, a pretty, like, comprehensive political text, and he's writing it, like, while fermenting revolution. Like, I think that's, I don't know, pretty impressive, um, considering yeah. I can't, like, knock two words together when I'm sitting in my room alone for, like, days on end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, and I think, like, what you're saying about the, um, the context of reading it just after the tragic defeat of our other father, Jeremy Corbyn, <laughs> um, in, in the election. Um, it's interesting in terms of like what we think about what we have to do now or what the way forward is, um, because I you think might, as people like, yeah. I was going to say, you might say what, what is to be done. Oh, <laughs> someone had to do it. It had to happen. There should be a klaxon that goes off whenever any leftist <laughs> says that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like what we're supposed to do. And I think like, Again, like a lot of the ways that these like thinkers are often invoked is like, well, you know, one time Lenin said it was good to vote, so you should all stay in the Labour Party. Or like one time Marx said that you should be in the party, so you should stay in the Labour Party. When obviously, like the context is very different, and as you say, he spends a lot of time savaging social democrats. Um, and also, something that I often think about is how he said that the English proletariat is has like the least revolutionary potential <laughs> of like all the proletariats in the world R.I.P. Um, and I guess how we think about that in relation to how we want to like organise in the Labour Party probably well for me outside the Labour Party and also address like um, the issue of like anti-imperialism um, in like a potentially revolutionary left or whatever movement in the UK where obviously like the reason why he says the English proletariat is the least revolutionary is not because of some inherent thing about people in England but because of its position as the heart of the British Empire. Yeah I think he discussed this I don't know where he said that but in his other short book um, which is imperialism the highest stage of capitalism I remember this bit where he talks about how um like the imperialist countries um, expansion into like other lands gave them the ability to raise the standard of living for the proletariat in their country and thus like remove some of their like r like revolutionary power so like yeah Plus compromise yeah yeah I mean thinking yeah. about that moment with labor is uh, pretty interesting isn't it because it has a huge kind of relevancy with, I, I know that those, those passages of when Lenin actually visited England and kind of saw the British Labour Party, I think he just found it incredibly bizarre. And he was like, why are all these people together that hate each other so much? And why do they have all these uh, peculiar rituals? Like, what really is this thing? But I, I've definitely been guilty of like quoting something a little bit later when uh, Lenin was like, you know, a British communist should be in the Labour Party because it's the big party of the working class. So you're just going to have to kind of suck it up and, and hold your nose. Um, but obviously there, that, that was within a very uh, specific context. And it's not just like some blanket way to pressure people to, to be organising in Labour um, in the UK. But I'd certainly, I, I often wish that... Corbyn had had a bit more of a Le Leninist tinge, or more Corbynism <laughs> had a more more of a Leninist <laughs> tinge. Um, although, you know, I guess it's a very uh, different context. But certainly, we we often hear that the left kind of abandoned thinking about the state, um, yeah. whether that was in favour of critical theory or just a sign of the left's weakness and yeah. fear of taking power. Uh, because of a backdrop of so much defeat and, you know, exclusion from politics and, and betrayal and uh, all of these yeah. various ailments. 
So there was this kind of ret retreat from thinking about the state or how to actually take power, how to actually rule the world. Whereas uh, in, yeah. in this moment that uh, Lenin is writing State and Revolution, like they're literally on the precipice of possibly taking power. Um, yeah. But as you say, um, uh, I mean, Lenin was in exile at the time. I remember reading these passages about him like, disguised in a wig and with like a kind of <laughs> uh, cloth cap and um, there's some pictures of it as well actually and like he like you know runs yeah. into various like huntsmen when he's hiding out in the woods and he has to pretend to be someone else and he's always afraid of getting caught and literally the whole time he's deciding like should I go back into Russia or st uh, stay out here and protect my life you know and it often mm. seems as if, as if it's kind of uh, on a knife edge whether he will choose to go back uh, but in the end he does and he in he instantly like um throws the door open and like storms in and all the bolsheviks are like <gasps> and then suddenly he's just like clearing house just like making demands left right and center winning votes and like you know yeah. he's come back with a slight slightly more radical than before and I think he was even yeah. finishing bits of State and Revolution, like literally like, on the train, like on the way back in. <laughs> <laughs> Still in disguise, you know. Time to go and do it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on the train there. He just can't stop. Um, but, but, the, so the, but the central argument of the book about the state, that it's kind of this horrible, oppressive tool that has to be smashed, but at the same time, you kind of need to take control of it, is something yeah. that in some form was a kind of debate within Corbynism, right? Because you had some people being like, um, you know, we're going to have to democratise the party before we can yeah. actually do anything in power. Or some people always saying, if we actually win power, they won't let us change anything. Yeah. And I was someone, at, which has been noted before, who was very critical of Corbynism <laughs> because I thought, you know, John and Jeremy seem lovely and I, I genuinely believe that they're... <laughs> they're project has its heart in the right place and I could see there's a popular you know kind of uprising that brought them into power it wasn't from above but I, I always kind of had reservations about like how much would we ever really be allowed to achieve in the party or, or in power and so I guess the Leninist version of thinking about this day actually is far more realistic um, at the same time as we can't just directly adapt it like where is the kind of where is the Bolshevik party in the UK right now like where is you know where is <laughs> the armed like? revolution we've barely got a left paramilitary you know I mean it's just slacking um, yeah I think, you know, me like, momentum is not people's soviets as much as we would have liked yeah. it to have been yeah um, like when you're talking about like how um, you think of like Labour as like the mass membership party, like maybe this is the party that like that we that Lenin wanted, but obviously it's not. Um, especially like in like twenty twenty, where it's extremely bounded by electoral like bourgeois democracy, which you know, as we know, is not real democracy. Um, and also the meaning, I think, the meaning of participation in the party is like very different. Because um, I think something that a lot of critics of like the Corbyn project are saying now, and maybe something that they tried to tried to do a bit before uh whilst being hamstrung at every turn uh was like political education like organizing in places like on the ground with people and trying to build like connections and like some kinds of like organizations of like alternative forms of power um but gen generally like when we think of like the labor party as this like i don't know a party of like 500,000 people in it like what it means is like very different from what it would have meant to have a mass membership party of like the Bolshevik party in like I don't know like 1917 um where like the relationship between like it's as a communist party like the relationship between members leaders and the whole party structure is like entirely different um I don't actually know where I was going with that <laughs> are you trying to um, kind of delineate comparisons between UK Labour and, and the actual Bolshevik party and you know what we should learn for British um, communism now yeah and also just like think about what what we should do now in terms of like actually like trying to build the forms of power because again like when uh when, again when Lenin was writing this and like when the 
revolution happened. Like, they were still, I think as we spoke about in the, like, Stuart Hall episode, like, they were still expecting revolutions to happen in the rest of Europe. Um, and there were a lot of actual, like, revolutionary movements going on. Like, I think it was, like, at that moment after the First World War in Britain was the closest that Britain has ever actually come to having a revolution. And then, and the landscape has just transformed so much over the past, like, 100 years. Well, I think certainly one of the things I wonder about is, you know, should UK Labour have had a leader from outside parliament as well because that's one of the things i think we notice about bolshevism is that uh initially the success of the revolution kind of stems from the fact that they're not so tied to the like parliamentary democratic process yeah and that kind mm. of idea of uh dual power between the soviets yes. and between the um you know, the provisional government is, is another vector that wasn't really being considered by the UK Labour Party the last uh, five yeah. years. But where, whereas in theory, it's something that could have been considered. But obviously, if we're thinking yeah. about the historical conditions that produced Corbynism to begin with, it was always predicated on kind of the weakness of the Labour movement, that such a thing was even allowed yeah. to happen. But I, I think that's another similarity in that kind of the revolution in Russia could be said to have happened there because of the kind of uh, weakness of the whole system, you know, like a kind of yeah. underdeveloped economy, uh, the peasantry um, kind of all over the shop, uh, the, the, the war had um, decimated um, so, so much and the Tsar was like this kind of uh, complete... What a mad one. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> this kind of vampire, lunatic, just like... <laughs> sleeping upside down in coffins, <laughs> like, you know. Um, and yeah. so it's like, yeah, they were, they, 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 I'm trying to say that sim the similarity is the conditions for their victory were also the conditions for their defeat. And it was baked into the process to begin with. And looking back yeah. at Corbynism, it's kind of hard to shake that feeling that it's also true. That the reasons that we won yeah. were the reasons that we lost. But that, yeah. that makes it seem a little bit predetermined that we always have to walk that balance between Marxist and materialist and realise that history kind of makes us just a little bit more than we make it. But you always have to kind yeah. of emphasise that we still do make it. It's not some like beyond uh, humankind process. It is something that is collectively made uh, mm. continually every day. And yeah. but I think also know, like, you know, we were a bit optimistic, but we were also a bit pessimistic. And I think we have learned that the pessimist in us is usually right. Often. <laughs> usually. 99 times Pessimi out of 100. Pessimism, pessimism of the intellect. Yeah. But, um, I, but yeah. but maybe that's a good opportunity to think about the kind of positive Leninist revolutions that did happen. <laughs> often when yes. people are like, oh, you like the USSR? Uh, would you happily kill the Tsar's children if it was up to you? <laughs> would you know? Would you break their little I mean, yes, posh but... heads in? I mean that. I mean that's what you're not allowed to say in that conversation. But I mean, you know, yeah. if they're the children of the Tsar, the forfeit, the one percent of forfeit. But um, yeah. but obviously, you can always bring up in those conversations the fact that you know Leninism was the creed occur of the majority world in there. Yeah. in their revolutions mm. in its practices and an analysis yeah Miriam, what's your favorite revolution <laughs> um you can tell a lot about a person by asking them what their favorite <laughs> revolution was <laughs> so no pressure yeah that is a lot of pressure actually top three um, <laughs> top three um gotta go for cuba oh, um nice. can't go wrong vietnam Ooh, i think vietnam is pretty sick um, also, Burkina Faso. Uh, I watched mm -hmm. a really great documentary about Thomas Sankara. Um, oh, my man. Yeah, I think he's great. Um, I love him. I mean, I've seen yeah. some, um, some anarchists <laughs> online recently, even coming for, for Sankara, just like, oh, well, don't you know he was a bit of a Stalinist? Uh, <laughs> like, not that great just to celebrate him if he's a bit of a Stalinist? Which I don't even know what Stalinist would mean in that context. I mean, I often don't know what it means if, you know, Stalin's been dead, like, so many years. He doesn't have a body of thought like Lenin has. He's just, like, some guy. 
Um, yeah. But but Sankara <laughs> is obviously absolutely incredible. I mean, what they did with health and literacy rates mm. and resisting colonialism. Um, mm. They were ahead and of the game in their discourse about state aid and rejecting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. agriculture. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so Thomas Sankara's big thing was that he didn't want to take foreign aid in the form of food from other countries. Like, I watched, there's a speech that he gave where he was like, that is neocolonialism, imperialism, mm. is like them, te- them giving us the food that we can farm ourselves and have done in the past. Yeah. Um, which I think was like a really interesting um, perspective. Um, obviously, like it's true. Um, and like <laughs> when in a world where like there's so much talk of like international aid, international development, NGOs, like all of this, like isn't it good to help people? And it's like, well, sometimes those things are imperialism. Yeah, <laughs> isn't it good to help people when you've already like taken the means for them helping themselves away from them? No. Yeah. Yeah. There's also um, in our quiz the great fact about him <laughs> that he, <laughs> um, what was it? He sold off the fleet of Mercedes government cars and made the Renault Five the official car of uh, like the ministers because it was the cheapest car in Burkina Faso at the time. Wow, that's some populism. Yeah. I love love me some populism. Yeah. Um. But yeah, a lot of these like, like these revolutionary movements were have like a lineage of like, not obviously not just taking Lenin's thought. Like it would be very simplistic, and also like, uh, maybe I don't know. It'd be very simplistic to just feel like oh these people were Leninists and they didn't do like they all in the same manner as Lenin like took Marxism and Leninism and transformed it to suit. Uh, and like with innovations to address the material needs of like their revolutions and their people in their situations at the time. And, you know, all the, um, well, I would say the vast majority of the actually existing successful revolutions that have happened, influenced by Lenin. I think Thomas Sankara's kind of fate as well kind of encapsulates perfectly kind of the joy and the tragedy of the same time at the same time of these uh, revolutions because obviously he was assassinated um yeah. probably by colonial france maybe by the cia like it's pretty yeah. it's kind of an open secret that he was he was taken out because their their revolution yeah. was looking too too successful yeah and obviously all over the world the places where things were looking good for kind of socialist revolutions people were assassinated or they kind of collapsed underneath their their own contradictions plus um pressure from the outside and interference and the you know the the diktats of the market and on all kinds of of issues right yeah and you know this is this is perhaps most hotly debated when it comes to the legacy of the ussr and yeah. in fact, I remember I was listening to David Grober talk once. I mean, he's a oh, he's an anarchist. Yeah, I, I'm, <laughs> I, I could tell you some stuff about him, but I'm not going to say it on air. Um, <laughs> but I used to know him. Um, but so David Grober did say to um, John Lansman something quite interesting, though, when uh, they were when Momentum was getting founded uh, a few years ago. Yeah. He said, anyone that comes to work for you, ask them, when do they think the Russian Revolution failed? So everyone have a have a have put a number in your head for the year that you think the Russian Revolution failed. That, that includes <laughs> listeners at home. Think of a year, and then he said, right. if anyone has a strong answer or a strong opinion about a certain year, don't hire them. <laughs> he said that's the way that you should know who to hire and who to uh, you know uh, leave to their um, kind of you know specific uh, political fixation. Yeah. But so I thought that was always interesting because it kind of brings into relief that uh, awkward legacy of the USSR, where yeah. where for me I think I always think like 1921, you know, like maybe I'm a bit <laughs> of a hipster. Really? Yeah, yeah. Because I know I think that's kind of like often the ultra leftist year to go for. 
Well, actually, some people say uh, 1917 it failed, like literally the day after they didn't abolish the value form of, of money and commodity. <laughs> <laughs> so they should have just abolished everything on the first day and it was just corruption. Um, but I know, I do, I seriously think that it was a, they had everything against them war and yeah. inside and war from the outside and empires mm-hmm. pressing down on them and as we said the, yeah. the russia was in such a bad condition like you know yeah. it's impossible but and yeah but there, there's people there's writers that i i, I respect like victor search and and yeah. others who talk about how you know there was something of a kind of Leninist terror. And I think it was a tragedy. And I would still robustly defend the legacy of the USSR, you know, right up until, uh, I mean, its demise. I think it was a necessary counterpower to the United States. Yeah. And I think... Like, had the US. Well, yeah, it had the US not interfered and organised a kind of coup with, with Yeltsin and then yeah. basically destroyed that country and sent mortality rates you know, uh, years back, that it might have ended up like a kind of uh, kind of contradictory kind of social democracy, you know, it might have, uh, um, but I, you know, I still think that it it was like kind of real existing state socialism yeah. in a form, and it, and it is a tragedy that it ended then. But I think the original yeah. intentions of the revolution, yeah, you know, that that kind of that kind of uh, ha- had to become something else because of the forces arranged against it. Yeah. But I, yeah, I think, maybe people disagree yeah. with me. Yeah. No, I think it's interesting um, to think about it in that way because, again, I think a lot of the ways that people like to talk about like socialist projects or revolutions, even countries that exist now, is to say, like, firstly, divorce it from their historical circumstances. Um, and secondly, to like divorce it from the like actual conditions that they were facing um and that like when 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 like certain decisions are made that they're, they're made firstly like in the case of what like, the revolutions that happened like in like the wave of like decolonization and like around that time firstly like if you look at the country today and you're like, oh, well, but how come they don't have the standards of living that we have in the West? It's like, well, firstly, because they are not in the empirical. Um, secondly, if you look at like what our country and a lot like, anyway, uh, and like a lot of the countries that we are like from um, did to like the people in these places and their land, <laughs> like the state that it was in and the transformation that has happened from then to where they are now, is actually incredible and something that our governments could never dream of. And secondly, like, maybe thirdly, I don't know. (laughs) Like, they were always in conditions of absolute, like, like, the most powerful opposition. Um, If you think about the USSR, like, if you think about Cuba, then, and to this day, like, literally, like, on the doorstep of the US being constantly, like, embargoed, sanctioned, attacked. Um, oh yeah, I mean they tried to kill Castro like over like a <laughs> hundred yeah. times, including with a uh, exploding cigar. Yeah. You know, I mean they tried to have they did the Bay of Pigs. Yeah. Um, like you know they the the stuff they tried to do to Cuba is insane. I mean to this day they have their torture facility Guantanamo Bay there, and every yeah. year they offer them like two thousand dollars to rent it, and every year Cuba rejects the payment. You know, like. <sighs> Yes, Cuba is not a landlord. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> I mean but with Cuba, it becomes particularly stark how uh, morally bankrupt and intellectually disgusting people are that would criticise these countries. Because all, mm. all they've done and achieved in the face of, of that level of adversity from, from a, you know, a global superpower that dwarfs it like a million times over and kind of uh, financial wealth and, and military yeah. power. I mean, it just it just makes it seem so ridiculous. I mean, yeah. and even people who actually maybe who were there at the time and have a kind of interesting critique of of the USSR and its kind of formation, even yeah. they will will have some nuance and some specificity compared to the people today who just kind of want to 
draw Leninism as kind of out of bounds yeah. of acceptable discourse. Yeah. So, well, that's the yeah. thing. Is like there's there are ways there are like as you say the support is always critical support, but what critical support means is like often you can't actually engage in critical in like criticism very well because the overwhelming like discourse propaganda whatever uh, <laughs> <laughs> is about like drawing outside drawing it outside of acceptable bounds so like first you have to like d- try and dispel all these myths that are based on like Mm. decades and decades of like Mm -hmm. basically brainwashing that you grow up with from like the moment that you like learn anything in the UK for example and like unlearning that first is so difficult that it's not it's kind of impossible for people to in good faith engage with like informed and nuanced like discussion or criticism of certain decisions or whatever that were made because firstly a lot of us just don't have access to information about it that is not just propaganda (laughs) and secondly like like you know what I mean like the room to have the debate is just not there and it makes it very difficult for us to try and like see like what we can actually learn or not um in certain cases because like the the level of discussion that we have available to us is so poor yeah I was gonna make this point as well and because like what you said about the like people not taking into account the historical conditions of the time or like not knowing all the information it just reminds me of something that Lenin said um which is that um he like he said he says something and he's like got a table in in imperialism he's got some table and he's like oh you know we could if if I just looked at part of the information I can draw whatever conclusion I like from it it's only when you look at the whole thing that you actually see the truth and I, I just really like that because I think it it really encapsulates what we see every day, which is that partial information can be used to draw incorrect conclusions. Um, and that the, the reason that we have partial information, as you just said, is not a coincidence. And it's not because people are not like seeking out, it's because they're actively prevented from hearing like what is true. And yeah, I mean, that's not helped by the frankly deplorable state of like the media in commentary in this country which uh, siang knows my feelings about <laughs> um. oh yeah i mean don't get me started i mean that's why i have my crossbow and i practice with the the commentary <laughs> on my cork board let's just say certain figures from the telegraph and the times um but even yeah. pl- like places like the guardian um navarra media like i feel like there's a lot <gasps> of like i don't know there's a lot of like in incorrect and incomplete yeah. should we say incomplete information that's yeah. put out there that yeah. is not yeah it's like a barrier to gaining a true understanding and like we just we don't have people like lenin who are writing this stuff today yeah um or if we do um they're not their voices are suppressed and held back yeah blurred yeah. minimized and misrepresented perhaps and without the mechanism of the party so that kind of organic leaders can actually rise up. Um, mm. Like I've met many great people with Leninist tinges in, in the labour movement the last few years. It's one of the things that excited me so much about Corbynism that there were like really, really good, like, you know, possible leaders in it, but there weren't the ways for them to be kind of rise through the ranks or to... Um, really do things. Like yeah, yeah. Just build kind of, power. Yeah just got yeah. absorbed into bureaucracy or, or uh, parliamentary structures and kind of just, you know, had had all of their efforts diluted by that. Uh, but I would say I would, I'm, I'm a bit of a Navarra defender. I mean, <laughs> I know you are. I feel like I, I, mean, <laughs> I feel like I often defend it both from kind of hard left, ultra left or uh, even liberals going, going the other way. But I think at least it's one of the few concrete attempts to do what's really necessary and kind of build our own or a new or more independent media, uh, however you want to conceive mm. it. I mean, the, the state of things is just so bad. I mean, everybody knows. And so I think that necessitates us actually kind of taking the means of representation or building our own means of communication. And at least Navarre is an attempt to do that. Although, of mm. course... It doesn't have the biggest um, listenership or uh, amount yeah. of people that watch I mean, it. But, you know. I suppose my my question is that, and I'm, I I think about this quite a lot, is that like, I don't know, I think 
it's been pointed out that they're they've like run pieces on things like Bolivia or Venezuela that like are incorrect and in the context of like the coup in like the recent coup like I think it's just like that was quite I found that quite like disappointing and then so in from that on that point like is it better is it worse to have a publication that supposedly is left and anti-capitalist and um saying the true things but is actually feeding through like opinions that like actively harm thousands of people in the in the like um outside of the imperial core do you know what i mean like and it's it's something that i yeah i think about like because maybe it is better than nothing to have something like that but then on the other hand like if you're positioned as the the voice in like left politics in britain whatever left means like i think that yeah from that platform i don't know it's i kind of lost the train of where i was gonna go but (laughs) (laughs) you got my point yeah, I think this is where uh, another, you know, Joe Siang split <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> in, <laughs> in the podcast. And that sometimes I don't really listen to or read Memorial Media. Sometimes I do when you tell me to. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> like, I think that it's very interesting to, in terms of when we think about trying to draw, like, acceptable boundaries in like left communist Mm. discourse um that i think in some ways is similar to like the project of like social democracy to a degree is to make certain policies like draw certain policies or positions inside the overton window or make the idea of like robust social democracy in the uk palatable which you know would be better than you know what we have now but part of the way that is done is by delineating how those positions are different from the things that are absolutely abject like genuine anti-imperialism and to me that's part of why I no longer really like well I've left the Labour Party (laughs) (laughs) and like I'm not really willing to compromise on anti-imperialism like at all um and i think that when we think about like creating um forms of like left media and we look at the landscape of what is popular i sometimes ask myself like is this form of left media more popular or more successful or more significant because it is like in some way better or sees the moment or whatever or is it so at least in part because in some way it has drawn itself inside the bounds of acceptable discourse mm. and drawn other things outside it. Well, I think there's a there's truth to both sides of, of what you're saying. Like, yeah. I would say that I would even like defend the existence of the Guardian. You know, to try and like <laughs> to try and um, draw our attention to something else to kind of make us see. Yeah. Uh, like I okay, I think there's critiques you can have of Navarre, but would would I want to exist in a world about Gu- the Guardian? Like you know, my emotional reaction mm. is yes. It drives me absolutely crazy. Like I see people just uh, publishing the most awful bilge in there day in day out uh, on on big salaries, just this completely pointless liberal endeavour. But would I actually, rationally speaking, if I analysed it, want The Guardian to not exist? No, because, Mm. like, then you would literally just have the tabloids and the BBC parroting what's ever in the tabloids or whatever, you know, the lobby journalists, whatever client journalism they're doing for the Tories that day. And, you know, if you think about this crisis, the last, uh, you know, month and a week um, that lockdown's been Mm. on or whatever, I mean, you'd probably still be in a, st- a state where the Tories are kind of constantly celebrated for how well they're handling everything, even while we have, like, proportionally speaking, one of the biggest death rates in the world because of kind of Thatcherite uh, mismanagement, corruption, and the kind of venal worship of the profit motive. And yeah. so, you know, I, I believe that even if an institution has much to hate about it, if, if there's something that it offers us, then we should we should kind of maintain it. Like, what do you think um, The Guardian offers? 
Well, so it does occasionally publish actual journalism um, and it does actually criticise the government, you know, occasionally. Mm -hmm. And it, so it does do these things that yeah. are often necessary. Until a few years ago, like, you know, you had prominence like Seamus Mill and Richard Seymour actually writing there. You know, and Richard mm. Seymour is someone that, like, you know, his his original blog was Leninology, uh, <laughs> Lenin's Tomb. He's cancelled now. We're the new Leninologists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he's got disagreeable opinions about China and Cuba, doesn't he? But yeah, he, so he's cancelled. He, he's not one of the more interesting living British Marxists actually writing about politics as it's actually happen, happening. Mm. And I think Navarra is, like... Far, far more clearly for me, I'm, I'm much, much, much rather it exists than doesn't. And I think I, I would, you know, be as bold as to read Leninism as being about you make use of what you have. And if you don't have what you need, then you make that, you know. So if you have a critique of, like, said newspaper, said small media provider, like said small party, then you've got to make your own. Like, there's, mm. there's no yeah. use sitting around kvetching about yeah. how it might, have, it might have done this or that that is... The way, you know. the way that I think about it is not like, you know, I don't like Navarra Media or The Guardian. And it's not like I don't want them to exist because I know that no matter what I do, they're going to continue to exist. So that's just not really a level of like... That's not the level of discourse or like thinking about the issue on which I operate. It's more like, do I invest in them? Like... Do I believe that they offer like a genuine like path forward or are they actually useful for the kinds of like social movements that I want to see? If you know what I mean. Um, and if the answer is no, then I think we have to think of slash support slash create alternatives. I think as you were saying. Yeah, absolutely. Just add to that yeah. constellation of, of left media as we try and make a new common yeah. sense. I think that's what's important, uh, really. Yeah. But I was I was going to um, I wanted to touch again on that kind of legacy of the, the USSR because I think that's mm. highly relevant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As to, yeah, I think what position you take on it, <laughs> it speaks a lot for what you think the right route to socialism is now, and also what yeah, position probably. you take on the contemporary institutions that we partially occupy or, you know, make up what might be termed as the left. And so um, there was this uh, Victor Serge quote in From Lenin to Stalin. Interesting. Which kind of talks about how there's different possibilities present in all of these things. Anyway, it says, um, mm -hmm. it is often said that the germ of all Stalinism was in Bolshevism at, at its beginning. Well, I have no objection. Only Bolshevism also contained many other germs, a mass of other germs. And those who lived through the enthusiasm of the first years of the first victorious socialist revolution ought not to forget it. To judge the living man by the death germs which the autopsy reveals in the corpse, and which he may have carried in him since his birth, is that very sensible. So here we have someone who is extremely critical of what might be termed Stalinism which mm -hmm. is a complicated matter that you and I have discussed previously. <laughs> Let's not get into it again. But, but so <laughs> even this outright critic of Stalinism, who has far more intellectual yeah. cali calibre than almost any Guardian or Observer journalist, you know... The, absolutely more. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the police of respectable discourse. But so he, he has, has this very opposing view of the USSR kind of post. Uh, 21, yeah. but he still says there's kind of multiple uh, possibilities uh, with, within all of these things all the time. Um, even mm. even thinking as a Marxist about kind of, you know, there's an interesting way to conceive of how conditions shape us to actually think of it yeah. as kind of germs that are, are present in all things that yeah. could, could mutate into different things depending on, you know, the kind of order of yeah. history. But I think it helps us think about our, our present moment where it wasn't actually a foregone conclusion yeah. uh, what happened to Corbynism. And it's not actually a foregone conclusion what will happen now. Like, we, we can see yeah. that there's a huge amount of flux, but yeah. it's kind of uh, shaped by these the, the, the institutions and the forces and mm. the kind of the, the history that, that we have. Yeah.
Um, well, we, Michael threw this again, a uh, Josie Yang split. <laughs> <laughs> um, slash, uh, Miriam and I have both applied to join, as you know, leftly applied and join, uh, applied to join uh, Red Fight Back. Oh, you're both joining Red Fight Back. Yeah, well, we're both trying to join. Well, the I sent the email <laughs> and then they replied being like, can you do the reading? And I was like, oh. <laughs> uh, what reading do you have to do? Um, some stuff on their reading list, um, yeah. which I can't tell you what it is because I have not done it. Oh, um, I thought you were about so to say, say it's secret, like Opus Day. <laughs> like they have a oh, secret no. list of banned books. <laughs> um, I think there might be a Stalin book on there. Um, it's like an article thing, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, he yeah. wrote some economics as well. Yeah. But so why why join Red Fight Back? I've spoken to some listeners in the intervening week actually who are interested in why I'm really? saying that you're joining. Yeah, yeah. I think wow. people are generally like, okay, you're making a kind of commitment here. Like, why this particular um, party? Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> why this particular party, Maria? <laughs> I think wasn't it? Were we like on Skype when we found it? Um, because we really like this. Um, Marxist documentary maker. Oh yeah, um, who's oh, like part of this documentary um, collective called Pro- Prolocult? Is that yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we we just found that he was like part of. Is he part of Red Fight Back? Yeah, um, he's on that reading list. Yeah, so we just we found it through that. Um, yeah, and I looked on their website and they had a lot of like stuff. So they recently published like their first um, like actual book, book-ish publication, um, which is about um, transphobia on the left. Um, and I have a brief look, I've not properly read it yet, um, but it looks good. And like some, like a comrade um, from Manchester um, was posting about it and saying that it was really good. So I'm excited for that. I also read they had like an article on their website, which outlined their positions on anti-imperialism. And I was yeah. Like, Mm, yes love it which basically was saying what i do believe which is that um a a lot of the ways in which like anti-imperialism is compromised is very opportunistic and that um it it i don't it's just a betrayal of like i think that at the moment especially like you can see there are so many like regime change operations like well propaganda operations are happening right now like so clearly and i think that any leftist (laughs) or self-proclaimed leftist who is willing to buy into that or compromise like by buying into that i I, yeah it's like i i have have no time for that so i was very attracted (laughs) by that um and i think just in general like the the vibe of it seems to be like people who, firstly are Marxist Leninists, um, whatever that means to you, but also um, are dedicated to like looking outside like the Labour Party to trying to build a genuine like movement. Um, and it's quite small at the moment, um, but it gives me hope um, for something in the future. And yeah, I don't know, I'm trying to join. But, like, the process is quite long. I also haven't finished reading the reading list. So uh, I'm not there yet. Um, but, yeah, I think if if anyone is looking... Is, as, as you mentioned before, you know, someone in the Labour Party who is a communist or has tinges of Marxism-Leninism Marxism, <laughs> but doesn't necessarily want to leave because it's not clear, like, if there are any other options that are available to us to look into Red Fight Black. Um, because that was the first time where I had been like thinking about leaving the Labour Party for a while that I like saw something and I was like you know maybe I'm into it maybe it can offer us something Um, and I think like because obviously neither of us are members yet like I don't I feel like we're not we can't like endorse it as like this is how we like seize power and like um, have like revolution but I think yeah I don't know I feel like we both tried out the Labour Party yeah. Um, <laughs> for several years didn't really really work out yeah. <laughs> um so like I don't know it's kind of just like for me it's just like 
some doing something feels better than doing nothing um so yeah yeah i think it's very admirable you know i i think there's another tendency on the left which is kind of against joining like certainly pre-corbinism there was always this kind of people would look askance for you for kind of having a level of political political commitment that went beyond Mm. kind of platitudes and and hobbyism and so i think it's actually very good just to get involved get your hands dirty like see what's happening like you know do some organizing and yeah i'm obviously kind of a big believer in that party i think (laughs) or or at least in organizations and and organizing Mm. and you know i think if it turns out that there's a good project going on with with red fightback or whoever i would be up for joining I think yeah. I'm just hesitant at the moment. I'm kind of seeing how things fall out with Labour and the Labour left. And I'm, I'm interested in seeing kind of what emerges out of yeah. the ashes of that. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, in the meantime, yeah. I'm trying to kind of su- survey the landscape. Yeah. But I think it's very worthwhile to to engage with that kind of, of project. Like, I'm worried people will turn their backs on organisations and... Yeah. retreat into you know mutual aid networks and like Media things groups. which are good but you can't actually uh change the world and very solidly that way you know, even if it's part of a kind of recalibration of social relations like that's good but it's not the uh the actual mm. way to to transform things yeah yeah as both uh, Lenin and Marx said, you know, <laughs> the, the co-op is not going to uh, instigate the revolution. <laughs> Actually, yeah. so um, in terms of um, Lenin, and maybe to close out, I was going to recommend one of my favourite books on the USSR and Lenin, which Ooh. is October by China <laughs> Mayville. Okay, Leon Trotsky. <laughs> Which, you know, I think it's a pretty solid book. And like China's part of this um, circle around the Salvage Journal, which includes Richard yeah. Seymour. But there's a lot of yeah. kind of proper communists involved with that. Yeah. Um, and I think what they do is actually very interesting. And their byline is kind of bleak as the new red. And I used to think, ah, oh, they're way too <laughs> pessimistic. And, and now I think, ah, oh, they were way too optimistic. Uh, now we know pessimism is correct. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, they've really been proven right. And I would suggest um, subscribing to that journal, actually. It's, a lot of their stuff yeah. is very good. But so in his book in the USSR, I think it's so good because it, it really is easy to read and it's really enjoyable. And you could read it on the beach or well, I guess beaches are cancelled. <laughs> You can yeah. read it in quarantine and it's a real page turner, uh, even if you yeah. have an attention span that's blown to bits. And it, it talks <laughs> you through like all of those moments leading up to the Russian Revolution and, and February and October. And when I was arguing in, with reactionary Labour Party members last year and the year before, <laughs> I was able to draw on it and kind of shut them up and say, talk about the actual conditions of, of what happened when they yeah. made some stupid statement. Um, yeah. Uh, but so he talks a lot about the cult of Lenin in that book, you know, and even if you're a big fan of the cult of Lenin, you want to climb We're into that sarcophagus. Yeah, if you want to climb into the sarcophagus <laughs> and hug, hug that corpse, that's fine. <laughs> and you might crack a few bones is all right. Like even even if you love that cult, you might say like, you know, it's not exactly uh, the best thing to have such a yeah. uh, kind of you know, you wouldn't say that the leader is faultless, that like you wouldn't go that far. No. But he talks so passionately about how Lenin was an inspirational figure. And um, in yeah. the book, he says, um, as for Lenin, all who meet him are mesmerised. As often as not, it seems, they feel driven to write about him. Libraries worth of such books exist. He is a man easily mm. mythologised, idolised, even demonised. To his enemies, he is a cold, mass-murdering monster to his worshippers, a godlike genius, to his comrades and friends, <laughs> looking at you guys, uh, a shy, quick, laughing lover of children and cats, we've all seen the cat photos, uh, capable of occasional verbal uh, ogies and lumbering metaphors. He is a plain rather than a sparkling wordsmith, yet he compels, even transfixes in print and speech, 
by his sheer intensity and focus. Throughout his life, opponents and friends would excoriate him for the brutality of his takedowns, his flint and ruthlessness. All agree that his is a prodigious force of will. To an extent, unusual even among that ilk who live and die for politics. Lenin's blood and marrow are nothing else. What particularly <laughs> distinguishes him is his sense of the political like moment, of fracture and fraction. <laughs> and I, so this is from this passage where they're saying we shouldn't like buy too much into like the cult of Lenin, the Lenin industry. But it also argues admirably how he was kind of exceptional and ruthless and, you know, a com complex but extremely driven. Yeah. And I guess I, I, I kind of just want to highlight that I think, you know, as Marxists, I don't believe that there are individuals who are more exceptional than their own historical moment. But yeah. I do think that we need to create the conditions where these kinds of people can actually uh, lead the movement rather than mm -hmm. it just to be, you know, lots and lots of people all kind of fragmented doing different things. And, yeah. and not coalescing yeah. around around a plan or a project or a program the way that that yeah. particular juncture um, allowed for. Yeah. And like, yeah. you know, and so Lenin was just able to kind of seize the opportunity in the same way that we do uh, now. Yeah. As, as Lunacharsky um, said of him, this is a friend of his, he said he raises opportunism to the level of genius, by which I mean <laughs> the kind of opportunism which can seize on the precise moment which always knows how to exploit it for the unvarying objective of the revolution. I wish I was like that. Exactly. Yeah. But, it's, but, we, but we kind of are like that. I think we are those we people try. who live we and die for try. politics. Yeah, yeah. But... Yes, yeah. probably. We're all failing our degrees for politics. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, well, we've got our priorities sorted. But... Can I make two recommendations? Uh, please, of course. Yeah, okay. Number one. Um, I actually hate to read, and I have to confess that despite being a Lenin stan, I haven't read very much Lenin. Um, the reason why I've grown to respect him so much. Okay, so we also joke about how we're part of the Lenin court, but, you know, what it's actually about is just learning about the histories of actual revolutions, and a lot of these that were inspired by Marxist-Leninist thoughts, practice, and programs that were developed through revolutions. So what I would recommend for those of you, like myself, who have no attention span, is podcasts. Not just this one, but I will mention our rival. Well, not our rival, he's better than us, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Brett from Revolutionary Left Radio. Oh no, we're much they better. Do, like, <laughs> we're very different. They do like two hour long, like extremely well-researched, uh, um, episodes on different topics from like communist history revolutionary history on like different theoretical like discussions that I found like so informative and actually have just transformed the entire way that I think about um, the state and revolution <laughs> and communist history um, just by learning like things that have happened so I'll recommend that and secondly I don't know if this is actually available online but I watched the live um, broadcast of this event called Lenin at 150 or something, <laughs> celebrating <laughs> Lenin. And it was organized by like, I don't remember what it was called. It was like, it's like a socialist party of the Philippines. And they invited three speakers, but I missed the first one. The second speaker was my main girl, Jodie Dean, <laughs> who um, spoke about um, Lenin and revolutionary love and I thought it was really interesting like how you mentioned about like the leader in the party and um, she was talking about Lenin's wife Krupskaya and how she wrote um like was it remembrance of remembrances of Lenin that you might expect to be about like you know bourgeois romantic love um but that you might you would actually be shocked by how I guess cold it would seem if you expected that because the way that she wrote about him was that he was a great comrade <laughs> that he did loads for the revolution <laughs> that he was dedicated that he was, you know, all these things and all the, their relationship is about comradeship and it's all about forming the party. And when he talks about Lenin's mum, he's like, oh yeah, she's really dedicated. She did a lot for the party. <laughs> um, and I just find that really interesting and also very useful for thinking about um, the actual, like, I guess, 
subjective relations of the party and what those might look like and how I think that sometimes the aversion, the aversion to like having an organization or a party is the is because of our conceptions of what an organization is like and our notions of what those organizational relationships and leadership can be like that are very focused on like the call of one person or the like leadership or power of individual people and while that obviously is a danger as well there is also a qualitatively like different relationship within that kind of communist party organization that is like in as you might say a dialectical relationship <laughs> between like the party the party and the members and the leader who is produced by the party and by an historical moment um and yeah just like a very you know i don't know like un non-like individualized like cultishness in the way that even Lenin's wife wrote about Lenin um, and then there was also a great talk about um, how uh, some of Lenin's, Lenin's writings on uh, national self-determination um, inspired a lot of like different revolutions including um, uh, like the New African movement and that was also very good so I would recommend that if I can find it online yeah well, strong very recommendations good. what would you recommend Everyone should read The State and Revolution by <laughs> Lenin. Yeah. And also, Imperialism is the Highest Stage of Capitalism by Lenin. Yes, it is. Wonderful. Well, All thank right. you for coming on to be our new resident Leninologist. And I think happy to be here. for our next episode, would you be happy to kind of be like a medium and hold a seance <laughs> with, with dear Mr. Lenin for us, where we can ask him questions through you as the kind of vessel? <laughs> wow. I'll have to see if he's okay with that. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, you check in with yeah. him and then let us know. I yeah. think that would be a cool experience. All right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> all, all the best to everyone and take care out there, comrades. All the best. Bye. 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 Bye.